Who are the Jehovah's Witnesses? Why do they knock on millions of doors spreading their message? What do they believe? You might be shocked. Welcome to Evidence and Answers with author, speaker, and Christian apologist, Dr. Pat Zuckerman. Recently, Pat invited Dr. Ron Rhodes, author of Reasoning from the Scriptures with Jehovah's Witnesses, to address this topic at a conference in Hawaii. Today, you'll hear part one of that presentation. And by the way, it's crucial resources like these that we offer at evidenceandanswers.org. Pat's articles, books, interviews with leading scholars, and past programs available for download on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, all at evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Now, Pat Zucharin presents Dr. Ron Rhodes on The Jehovah's Witnesses. It might interest you to know that 25% of the people who join up with cults today come out of evangelical Bible-believing Christians, Christian churches. And another 40% or so come out of the larger Christian denominations. Any way you spell that, it spells disaster. For that many people to be coming out of churches and joining up with Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons or other groups is not as it should be. Now, I'm going to be narrowing my attention today to the Jehovah's Witnesses who are very aggressive. And I suspect if I took a poll here, most of you have encountered Jehovah's Witnesses on the doorstep. And I always enjoy talking to Jehovah's Witnesses. I don't treat them as the enemy. They're not the enemy. Satan's the enemy. You know, Christ loves all people on this planet. He seeks for them to come to know the truth, just like he sought for you to come to know the truth. And so when they stop by, I like to make myself available to talk with them and even invite them back if they're willing to come back. Uh, granted, they don't always come at the, at the most opportune time. Generally, it's right before the football game starts. But, uh, you know, you've got a TiVo, you know, just turn it on and record it, and, and then you can spend some time and talk with them. So I'm going to talk tonight about a little bit of the history of the Jehovah's Witnesses, then I'm going to focus on their doctrines, and then how to answer them. Not just in terms of apologetic answers, but also some things just you ought to keep in mind as you're talking with them. And I think that by the time we're through tonight, you'll have a good handle on how to talk with them. Uh, let's begin by just looking at a few current statistics, which I think really show how important this group is. First of all, they spend over a billion man hours each year propagating their unique doctrines, their cultic doctrines. Over a billion man hours. I'm talking about people who go door to door, ringing the doorbell, and talking to people on the doorstep. They've got millions of courses that are taught each month. Typically, these courses are based upon their uh, literature. You've seen some of the Watchtower books, I, I assume. They don't have uh, names on them, as if some human author wrote them, but uh, it sort of gives the idea that Jehovah wrote all these books through the Watchtower Society. And based on those books, there are many courses that are offered. And when they offer a new course to new Jehovah's Witness, they uh, really give you a lot of positive strokes. They'll have you read a book, and then they'll ask you some questions. And if you get the right answer, they'll say, that's good. Yes, you've got it. And, and they keep going through that kind of a process where they're giving a lot of positive strokes. And before you know it, uh, you're sucked into this new group. Uh, one of the things that we've noticed where we live in Texas is sometimes they will actually visit the uh, uh, churches in our area and they'll watch for an altar call. And after the altar call, they'll go up to the people who came forward during the service and say, we'd like to invite you to our Bible study. They won't say it's a Jehovah's Witness Bible study. They'll just say it's a Bible study. And then after they've come to the Bible study four or five times, then they sort of spring it on them that it's Jehovah's Witnesses. And so you have to watch out for that. I mean, it could even happen in this church. You just have to watch out for uh, uh, what we call sheep stealing in the cultic community. Uh, they publish in over 100 languages, and so they're not just uh, focusing on the English language but they're focusing on overseas as well. 
For example, over in Russia, the Jehovah's Witnesses have been growing at a rate of 700% per year. That's a lot. And so one of the things that I've done is that I've taken my book, Reasoning from the Scriptures with Jehovah's Witnesses. For those of you who don't know, it's a big 450-page book on uh, standing against Jehovah's Witnesses. And what we've done is we've made a special arrangement with a missionary organization that, that specializes in apologetics, and we had some independent money raised where we were able to translate that book into Russian for pennies on a dollar. I contacted the publisher and asked them to take no royalties on the book. I surrendered all royalties on the book myself. What it means is that we were able to put that 450-page book out for almost nothing in the Russian language. And this year, a copy of that book is going to every pastor in Russia. And so, uh, yeah, we're we're trying to uh, stem the tide, as it were. And it's amazing what God will do when you take money out of the equation. Amen? The first printing of many of their books is 5 million copies. Now, that's a lot. When you're talking about a New York Times, uh, you know, John Grisham or someone like that, generally the first printing will be somewhere between maybe 150,000 to maybe 400,000, something like that. But their first printing is 5 million copies. It's way more than my books. It's way more than Norm Geisler's books. And so we've got our fight uh, before us. It's just an awful amount of literature that's going out there that's cultic in orientation. They put out 3 million New World translations each month. And if you compare that to an evangelical publisher like Zondervan or Tyndale that published Bibles too, it's way more. You know, for example, a typical printing of a, of a popular Bible might be 100,000 copies. But 3 million per month, that is a tremendous number. The Watchtower magazine that you see on the screen here goes out to 25 million people per issue. Just to give you some perspective on that, that's more than U.S. News and World Report, Newsweek, and Time magazine all put together. So, I mean, that's an awful lot of people that this cultic magazine goes out to. One of their books, You Can Live Forever in Paradise on Earth, has now gone out to 47 million people. That's that's a lot of books when you think about it. Uh, In terms of Kingdom Halls, that's their version of a church. They're putting up about four to six per month, and they kind of do it like the Amish used to do things. They uh, get a bunch of Jehovah's Witnesses together, and they raise it in one day. So, you know, it's, it's one of those things where it happens very, very fast, but they're very effective. They, they all look the same. You've probably seen some stores that all have the same kind of basic plan or some of the restaurants. They all use the same basic chain. No matter where you go, they have the same design. Well, that's the way the kingdom halls are. They almost always look the same based on the same design, and uh, they're raising around four and six per month in the U.S., even more overseas. So just based on these statistics, I can think you, think you can see that this is a group that is worth paying attention to. It's a group that we need to respond to. In terms of the history, it's kind of interesting because all the major leaders of the Watchtower Society have come out of good churches. Let's look at this. Charles Russell, whom you see at the top here, is the guy that founded the Jehovah's Witnesses. He abandoned the Presbyterian Church primarily because he disliked the doctrines of the Trinity and hell. He didn't like those doctrines, so he tossed uh, the Presbyterian Church and he founded some Bible study groups in the 1800s And then in 1881, he founded the Watchtower. Now, what he did was he uh, came up with this idea that Christ was coming again in 1914 and that God would overthrow all human governments that year and set up his own kingdom on earth. So after he wrote some literature on this, he hired hundreds of evangelists who would then go door to door and try to sell this literature. That's how it all got started. You know, he was a a wealthy businessman. At least he he had a good amount of money. And he pumped that money into hiring a bunch of evangelists to go door-to-door and sell this literature. And it started to mushroom from there. Now, Judge Rutherford, the next guy that you see here, he's the guy that took over after Charles Russell died. 
Russell actually wanted a board of directors to oversee the watchtower after he died, but Judge Rutherford took over. It's kind of like a, a, a corporation, like, like you'd see in a business somewhere. But uh, Judge Rutherford used to be a Baptist, and after reading some of those books by Charles Russell, he became a Jehovah's Witness. Well, he too decided to try his hand at Bible prophecy, so he prophesied that in 1925, the Old Testament patriarchs like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and some of those guys would be resurrected from the dead and move into this big mansion in San Diego. It's called Beth Sharim. Well, guess what? They never showed up. But somebody had to move into that mansion. So Judge Rutherford moved in. Uh, it's amazing the way that happened, but uh, nevertheless, somebody had to take up occupancy. It's interesting that Judge Rutherford had a unique approach to, uh, to evangelism. Basically what he did was he developed a message that he put on a phonograph record, and then he had Jehovah's Witnesses go door to door, ring the doorbell, and right on the doorstep, they would play this, this phonograph. So, uh, you know, no matter where the Jehovah's Witnesses were, they would play this message from Judge Rutherford, like, like a little, little record player. Not only that, but during those same years, they had these cars that would drive through neighborhoods that had speakers on top, you know, like horns that would point outward. And as they drove through the neighborhoods, you'd hear Judge Rutherford's voice just being pounded out there. So uh, they tried a, a number of unique evangelism methods during those years. Uh, Nathan Knorr, whom you see pictured below him, came out of the Reformed Church. And it was under Nathan Knorr that Jehovah's Witnesses started to be trained in going out two by two and learning to have victory on the doorstep and witnessing to people. So they started to train on a weekly basis in winning dialectic combat with other Baptists and Presbyterians and Methodists and Lutherans and everyone else. And uh, Jehovah's Witnesses started to be very effective at that. It started to be the case where the Jehovah's Witnesses were much better prepared in sharing what they believed than the average Christian. And as Dr. Walter Martin, my old friend, used to put it, they uh, would eventually learn to turn the average Christian into a doctrinal pretzel in about 20 seconds. Nathan Noor also took his stab at biblical prophecy and said that in 1975, Jehovah would overthrow human governments and set up his own government on this earth. Well, of course, that year came and passed. But the thing of it is, is that in the years leading up to 1975, the Watchtower magazine continually ran statements to the effect that it was surely going to happen, that you can count on it. And then, uh, you know, people started to use their savings, who were members of the Jehovah's Witnesses. They'd use their savings and quit their jobs and go out and spend all their time witnessing door to door, anticipating that Jehovah was going to show up, you know, and, and set up his kingdom on earth. And then when 1975 came and went, they were very disillusioned. And in fact, it was at that time that hundreds of thousands of Jehovah's Witnesses left the watchtower. And so it was a heartbreaking thing when you think about it. I mean, even old couples would give up their money that they'd been saving for retirement and use it to support themselves as they were witnessing door to door. And so that's something that uh, was a heart-rendering thing. And then, of course, you also see Frederick Franz, who came out of the Presbyterian Church and uh, became a Jehovah's Witness, and he was known as the theologian of the movement. Now, why do I bring up all this Presbyterian and Reformed and Baptist stuff? Well, basically, I think it's kind of similar to what the Apostle Paul told the Ephesian elders. Paul said to them, Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Can you see that that's what's happened in modern times? People have left good churches, like a Presbyterian church or a Reformed church or a Baptist church, and then they've latched on to cultic doctrine and they've drawn disciples after them. 
to the point now that there are virtually millions upon millions of Jehovah's Witnesses who are deceived by Watchtower doctrine. I want to be careful here because I think your average Jehovah's Witness is a very sincere person. They believe what they believe. They're not thinking that they're deceived and they're not thinking they're out to deceive you. They think they've got the truth and they want to share it with you. The dishonest people, in my opinion, are the Watchtower Society and the people that make it up. I believe that those guys know that they've lied. And in fact, there's a tremendous amount of evidence toward that effect. And I'll share some of that tonight. In terms of the authority of the Watchtower Society, man, this is an organization that you obey or you're out. It's basically considered to be God's voice on earth. Unquestioning obedience is expected. You are to depend upon the Watchtower Society for the correct interpretation of the Bible. They say that you should have dependent Bible study. It's almost like a glasses, watchtower glasses. Whenever you read the Bible, you have to put on your watchtower glasses in order to understand what the Bible really means, which is one of the reasons when I talk to Jehovah's Witnesses, I try to handle myself in such a way that they take off the watchtower glasses so they can see what the text really says. And I'm going to show you how to do that a little bit later. Anyway, it's kind of interesting that they have taught that uh, if you read watchtower literature, you will be in the light and you will stay in the light. But if you read the Bible alone, then you're going to be in darkness within two years. Now, isn't that amazing? Isn't that amazing? I mean, just if you read the Bible alone, you will be in darkness. But if you read their literature, then you're going to be in the light. I think that's a terribly deceptive thing. The penalty for disobedience and the penalty for questioning Watchtower doctrine is disfellowshipping. What that means is that your family and your friends don't talk to you anymore. They do say that if you've got uh, family members who question the watchtower and they get disfellowshipped, you can carry on necessary business. You can relate to them as a family member, but nothing beyond that. And this is one of the things that I think really keeps a lot of Jehovah's Witnesses as Jehovah's Witnesses. It's been my experience that you can actually convince a Jehovah's Witness that you're doctrinally correct, but they remain a Jehovah's Witness because they don't want to lose their family. They don't want to lose their friends, you see. So this is something that's going to require prayer. Only God can motivate a human being to leave a, an organization where they're going to lose friends and family members. And friends, I could give you one testimony after another from Jehovah's Witnesses I've talked to who have made that decision and how hard it was, how they lost their families and friends, how they won't speak to them anymore. It's a hard, hard decision. And that's why prayer is so incredibly necessary. Well, having given that introduction, let me move into some of the doctrines of the Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, Norm Geisler talked about the essentials of Christianity and what we're going to see now is how the Jehovah's Witnesses actually depart on some of those essentials. And uh, this is really the heart of some of what we're going to study tonight. Jehovah's Witnesses say, first of all, the only reliable Bible is the New World Translation. What the Jehovah's Witnesses say is that there were ancient scribes who dishonestly removed the word Jehovah from the Bible. And they say that the New World Translation has not only inserted Jehovah in the Old Testament, but even in the New Testament where the text refers to the Father. And they do that despite the fact that there are no Greek manuscripts anywhere that support that practice. Now, I find that amazing. They say that the New World Translation is the most accurate translation, but they've inserted the word Jehovah all throughout the, the New Testament, even though no Greek manuscripts support that. One thing you will find is that this uh, translation does support some of the doctrines that Jehovah's Witnesses believe. It's a radically biased translation. I've read the translation. I think that parts of it are not just biased, but it's just bad reading. For example, you might remember that scripture in the Old Testament, Thou anointest my head with oil, 
Uh, in the New World Translation, it reads, Thou hast greased my head. I just don't uh, get excited about that. It's like the Fonz, you know. I mean, <laughs> you know. Number two, God is finite. His only name is Jehovah, and he is not a trinity. What do I mean when I say that God is, is finite? Well, according to uh, Watchtower literature, God is restricted to one body in one location. That means, according to them, that he is not omnipresent and not omniscient. Now, those are big words. So let me tell you what they mean. When I say that, uh, that God is not omnipresent, that means that he's not everywhere present. When I say that God is not omniscient, according to Jehovah's Witnesses, they mean that he's not all-knowing. So they will tell you that uh, the angels are the eyes and the ears of Jehovah. They will also tell you that the Holy Spirit that emanates from God's being helps God to understand everything that's going on out there. Now, this is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning. He doesn't need the angels to be our eyes and ears. Amen? His name is Jehovah. They base that on Exodus 3.15. And this is the passage which tells us, according to the New World Translation, that Jehovah is God's name to time indefinite. That's how they translate it. To time indefinite. So in other words, you have to use the name Jehovah. It's even necessary for salvation. You have to call upon the name of Jehovah in order to be saved. Now, this is in contradistinction, for example, to the New Testament, where it talks about calling upon the Lord, which is typically calling upon Jesus Christ for salvation. Uh, one of the things I always try to do with the Jehovah's Witness is to help them understand that it's a Jesus book. I'm going to show you how to do that a little bit later tonight. And then finally, the, uh, the God the, that they worship is not a trinity. They will tell you a number of things if you're on the doorstep. Uh, they'll say that the word is not even in the Bible. If the word trinity is not in the Bible, then how could it possibly be a biblical concept? They will tell you also that the ancient pagans, like the Babylonians and the Assyrians, held to a concept of a, a triad of gods. And these three gods would rule over a pantheon of other gods. And typically, Jehovah's Witnesses will tell you that paganism infiltrated the early church. And uh, the early church actually derived the doctrine of the trinity from paganism. And they will also tell you that according to 1 Corinthians 14.33, that our God is not a God of confusion. Now, the Trinity is confusing, right? Therefore, this verse clearly teaches that God is not a Trinity. And that's really warped logic, and I'm not going to talk about it yet. I'm going to talk about it a little bit later. But I want you to put that on the back burner and be thinking about it. That verse that says that God is not a God of confusion. Is that really a Trinitarian verse? We'll talk about it a little bit later. Uh, number three... Jesus was originally created as the archangel Michael, is considered a lesser god. He died on a stake and resurrected spiritually. Boy, there's a lot of content there. Doesn't sound like the uh, Jesus that you and I know, does it? In terms of the archangel Michael, basically the Jehovah's Witnesses say that Jesus was created as the archangel Michael billions of years ago. And after he was created, the archangel Michael was then used by God to create everything else in the universe. So Michael was created first, who was Jesus, and then Jesus, or Michael, created all other things in the universe, including this planet. They will say that uh, Jesus is therefore a lesser God, and typically they'll chain a bunch of verses together in proving it. Now in proving it, I'm just going to play the role of a Jehovah's Witness if I could. Would you mind if I do that? Real quick, I'm just going to make like I'm a Jehovah's Witness, and I'm going to give you this, the standard passages they use, okay? <laughs> I'm glad you said come in. Last time I did a conference on this subject, someone said, go away. And 
That's not what you want to do. Okay, so I'm coming in. You know, a lot of people think that Jesus is eternal deity, but when you think about it, that's not what Scripture teaches at all. In fact, he's called the Son of God in John 3.16. Now, if Jesus was God like the Father was, wouldn't he be the Father? But he's called the Son. Therefore, he must be a lesser God than God the Father. Uh, furthermore, Colossians 1.15 says that he is the firstborn of God's creation. Well, the firstborn must mean that he was created. The Father was never called the firstborn, but Jesus is. Therefore, Jesus must be a lesser God than God the Father. And hey, how can you deny Jesus' own words in John 14, 28? The Father is greater than I am. Clearly, Jesus was teaching that he is a lesser God. And in 1 Corinthians eleven three, we read that God is the head of Christ. That must mean that Jesus is a lesser God than God the Father. Otherwise, it would say Christ is the head of everything else. But it says that God is the head of Christ. And then finally, in Revelation three fourteen, it says that Christ is the beginning of God's creation. He must have been created first, and then everything else was created. All right, my role is over as Jehovah's Witness. The average Christian has no idea how to answer those verses, and it sounds very convincing. And it's one of those things where stringing these verses together without looking at the context seems to make an airtight case. This is one of the reasons why I said that the average Jehovah's Witness can make a doctrinal pretzel out of the average Christian in about 20 seconds. You string these kind of verses together, and most Christians have no idea in what to say. Now, I'm actually going to answer these verses, but later. So you're going to have to wait. It's a little trick to keep everybody in their seats, all tense, waiting. He became a mere man. This is one of the more fascinating things about Jehovah's Witnesses. Normally, when you and I think about Jesus being born on earth, we think of Jesus being born as God in human flesh. That is not their viewpoint. Their viewpoint is that when Jesus was born on earth, he was born as a man, and that's it. He was born as a man, nothing more nothing less. He was a perfect man. He was not God in human flesh. He, would not, he was not lesser God in human flesh. He was a man. And see, they teach that Jesus had the same kind of humanness that, that Adam fell with. If he had been God in human flesh, that would have been way too much as a sacrifice. Jesus had to be a perfect man to make up for the man that fell, which was Adam. You see, so he was first an angel then he became just a man. What, what God did was is, uh, Jehovah took the life force or the life energy out of the angel and stuck it in a man. You see, And then when it came time for Jesus to resurrect, he resurrected not on a cross but on a, uh, an upright stake. They say that that's what the Greek word really means. And he resurrected spiritually as an angel again. So you could sort of summarize Jesus' life throughout all eternity as he was created as an angel, he became a man, and then he resurrected as an angel. That's the Jehovah's Witness view of Jesus Christ. That's a different Jesus altogether than what you and I believe in, and we'll talk about that shortly. Uh, number four, the Holy Spirit is not a person, but is rather an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is not a person, but is rather an impersonal force. And through this force, Jehovah accomplishes his will. Well, how do we know that it's uh, uh, just a force? First of all, how could you say that a person could fill so many people at Pentecost? I mean, you had a, over 100 people there, and the Holy Spirit filled them all. That sounds more like a force. It doesn't sound like a person. Secondly, the Holy Spirit doesn't have a personal name. If he doesn't have a personal name like, like the Father does, Jehovah, or like the Son does, Jesus, well, he must not be a person like the Father and the Son. And so they're quite sure... That, uh, that the Holy Spirit is an impersonal force. 
Number five, human beings have no immaterial nature and are not conscious following the moment of death. They have no immaterial nature and are not conscious following the moment of death. In other words, they don't have a soul that is distinct from the body. What they will tell you is that the word soul refers to the life force within a person. If you can imagine a car battery that's charged, it's got plenty of energy in it, well, that's, that's good. But what happens when that energy drains out? The battery dies. It's no longer alive as a battery. Well, that's kind of like the way it is with a human. The human has a life force within him called the soul. When that life force wanes, the person is dead. He doesn't have a separate spirit that departs from the body. And that means that the moment that the, the, that the human dies, there's no longer any consciousness. You're just snuffed out of existence like that. And of course, your hope as a Jehovah's Witness is that you'll be resurrected. But you don't know that. You, you don't know for sure. There's no assurance of salvation. So that's kind of a, a depressing thing, isn't it? You know, you and I know that the moment that we die, our spirit goes to be with the Lord. We look forward to that time. But their viewpoint is that the moment they die, their consciousness is gone. Thank you so much for joining us on Evidence and Answers with Pat Zuckerman. It's our hope to keep a quality program on the air and on the web that presents an intelligent response to the issues of our day and demonstrates the truth of the claims of Christ. If you agree, please support us with your prayers and gifts. One of the ways you can do that is by purchasing our resources available at evidenceandanswers.org. You'll educate yourself and your family, and you'll help us keep expanding. You can download past shows on everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, read Pat's articles, and purchase Pat's new book with Dr. Norman Geisler, The Apologetics of Jesus, evidenceandanswers.org. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Go there today.